0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: Our call to confession this morning comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or what is in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Leading up to this declaration by Yahweh God of who he is and what his commandments are, he has brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He has led them through the wilderness, sustaining them with manna from heaven and water from the rock at Horeb. As we arrive at Exodus 20 today, God has laid out his purposes for the nation of Israel, that they are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. After they've been cleansed and prepared, Yahweh descends on Mount Sinai in a fire, which causes the mountain to smoke and tremble, and he tells the people who he is, what he has done, how he has redeemed the nation from the house of slavery. God declares to the nation his power, his authority, and his majesty beyond all their so-called gods. He declares that he alone should be worshiped. He alone in all of his glory is worthy of praise and honor. The phrase that we find in verse three, before me, speaks not only of an ordering, as if you're putting in Yahweh on a list of your likes and things you worship as two or three, but ultimately by setting up any substitute Instead of Yahweh, any idol that stands before His face, anything that is opposed to the true God. Considering our worship this morning, thinking about what we assign worth to, what is of value to us? How then are we worshiping? Have we placed God before all things? Do we acknowledge His preeminence, His sovereignty over all things? A good measurement for thinking about this is how we use our time what people, activities, thoughts, and ideas did we devote our time to. Whatever those things are, we have given worth to them. We have decided that they are of value to us. As we consider the object of our affection, we see that God has worked in our lives in the same manner as the Israelites. He has revealed himself to us in all of his glory and power as the creator of heaven and earth and has brought us out of our own house of slavery. Out of a bondage to sin and to death, let us confess now our sins, acknowledging that we have placed idols before Him in our minds and our lives, and that we are seeking God's forgiveness and grace, that we would be a holy people, loving Him and keeping His commandments. Let
2: us pray. Father, we come. To your Word, hoping to hear You speak to us. May You send Your Spirit so we may learn, grow, and be challenged to greater love for and obedience to You. We pray that You root us deeply in Your truths, so as we face trials in this world, that we may stand firm. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today's text is Mark chapter 1, 16 through 28. But let's uh, rewind a little bit and do a recap. Uh, Before we go into the text, the first week we saw that Mark was writing to the persecuted church, likely around Rome in the late 50s. The early church was facing pressure from both the Jews and the Roman Empire. And Mark is quoted uh, several prophecies of Christ and his herald, John the Baptist, and their coming. And he pulls the texts about Israel facing off against the empires larger than their nation, such as Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. Then the second week we saw that we can trust in Christ because he doesn't fall to temptation. He is God's chosen Messiah. The Spirit is upon him, and he will bring justice to all nations. We also saw that Christ, he's a perfect Savior. He is called by God, and he cannot fail us. He is chosen of God. He is loved by God. He is pleasing to God and by repenting. And by turning from our sins and following him, we will enter the kingdom of God. Both Christ and John the Baptist taught about this gospel of the kingdom and its entrance by repentance. I put it this way last time concerning the kingdom. There has been a revolution. There's a new king on the throne. Repent of your sins and come peacefully. Otherwise, you will find yourself an enemy of the state. And this new king will come back And anyone who's not found loyal to him will be treated as a traitor. This is what Jesus is calling the gospel here. There's a new king, there's a new kingdom. Therefore, turn from your old loyalties and sins and live in this new order. Today, we'll break this text down to two parts. Let's let's look first at uh, the first section, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little bit further, they saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and, he, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So we looked at verses 14 through 15 last time. I just wanted to read them for context here. So after Jesus' baptism, after his temptations in the wilderness... Uh, After his approval from the father, this is my son whom I'm well pleased, he starts proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom. And he's going around, and now he's calling disciples. He's gathering people to himself. And in this case, he calls four fishermen. Simon, who who we call Peter, and his brother Andrew, and then the sons of thunder, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He will later call other disciples, but this text focuses on these four here. And I think that's because of their profession, right? They were all in the fishing business, and he was by a lake. Makes sense. Peter and Andrew were out on a boat, casting their nets into the sea. And James and John were in their boats, mending their nets, right? They're fishermen. And working with their father, probably younger than Peter and Andrew... Uh, who who are not with their parents, right? So these two younger men were with their parents. Peter and Andrew were on their own. And this fits a traditional view that Peter is likely the eldest of the apostles because his dad was not with him, would not have needed to be with him. And during this call to the apostles, Jesus gives this great turn of a phrase, right, This this great idiom to explain the type of work that he's calling them to. They will go from being catchers of fee- seafood to fishers of men. At first, it seems like a cute way to say it, right? A-, a cute turn of a phrase. A sweet way to call someone to ministry. And often we get that in our minds, the idea of fly fishing, line fishing, right? A lazy Saturday afternoon with a thin wire arcing gracefully overhead, out in a quiet lake with quiet woods behind you. When you think fishing, that's what you think. But that's not this case. This is net fishing, where you drop a weighted net into the water, hoping that some unfortunate school of fish gets caught up into it, and then you yank them out of the water. Imagine that. These men are professional fishers. right? They do this for a living, probably their whole lives, getting this profession from their dads and passing it on to their sons. They cast out nets, and often... They catch dozens of fish at a time, or nothing at all. This is not easy work, hauling up a net with dozens, maybe a hundred fish, as they're all pulling the opposite way, knowing that that net can rip on you, the pure weight of all this fish, all swimming, trying to escape. And imagine the smell of these men after hours of fishing in the hot desert sun, right? And they are taking wild, untamed creatures and bidding them into the boat to come and die. And now Jesus comes to them and says, go do that with people. Go do that with men. To snatch people up and call them to die to themselves. And like how fishing can be smelly and dirty, so is dealing with sins. This is not easy. There is much to unpack here. And by calling to be an apostle or a minister of Christ to be fishers of men. This is not talking about one-on-one evangelism. Right? It, it, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with going out and getting a coffee with your neighbor to you talk about Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. And right? any analogy you hear about using the right kind of bait to fetch, to fetch people. You know, be sweet. Be winsome to catch people. That's not even, they don't even use bait when they're doing net fishing. That imagery is foreign to this concept. But rather, Christ is saying, but how tough the job is of saving men's souls. And this is what he's calling them to. And rather, instead of drawing fish out of the water, you're drawing men out of their sins as they swim against you. And to do so by family, tribe, nation, and tongue like how fish are smelly and hard to catch, even ripping the nets, men are sinful and naturally reject Christ. Now there's something else to note here. Look at what the sons of Zebedee walk away from. Now all four of these men walk away from a lifestyle that generally has some success and can provide a decent living. Fishing in those days normally provided a middle-class life. You know, the middle class could be in the first century. But James and John particularly walked away from a lucrative situation. Their father was successful enough to be able to pay servants. He had hired servants. So the boats, the nets, the servants, everything they needed would have been given to them, handed down, when their dad retired or passed. And this is good. This is a good thing, right? To pass down to the next generation We read in Proverbs that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's a good thing that uh, the sons of thunder would have inherited his dad's business. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, For children are not obliged to save up for the parents, but parents are to save up for their children. And James and Andrew's parents are doing well by raising their kids up in the family business and preparing them to have it for when the time is right. This is good. This is building and transferring familial wealth. It's biblically sound. Poverty is not a virtue in and of itself. And an onerous state of taxes are, are immoral and unbiblical. Yet, they walk away from it all for the sake of Christ. The boats, the nets, the other equipment, the servants, would have been given them a head start. And would have given to their offspring. Would have been good for their children. But they left their family. They left their homes, their employment. They left their lives behind for the sake of Christ. Now, our calling to follow Christ might be similar. Right? We may be called to leave our homes. We might be called to leave our families, to, to leave our jobs, to leave our friends. That's if we're called into ministry and missions. Rather, the normative expectation would be to increase in wealth. To grow a family, pass it down, create a legacy. That's the normal expectation, unless you're specifically called to otherwise. So rather, we need to do all these things under the Lord. Work in your career as if you're doing it for Christ. Parent your kids as if you're doing it for Christ. Love your spouse with submission and sacrifice as if you're doing it for Christ. Children, love and honor your parents as if you're doing it for Christ. And in everything, do it as if you're doing it unto Christ. Leave doing these things for purely selfish motives or practical means. And do them under the lordship and submission to Jesus. According to his word. Giving it all to him, living by faith, glorifying him, and then watching him bless it. Christ is building A kingdom of people who will follow him. And here he calls these four men, and later he will call others. And he's building a kingdom of priests. We are called to unity with each other as we are united to him. And the exact calling of these apostles might not be the same calling for each of us. In fact, we know it isn't. These common fishermen take over the world, right? They disciple the nations. What Jesus calls them to, we are likewise called to, we continue in their work. But we are not apostles, there are no apostles today. There are 12 disciples who who are face down the Jewish elite, who face down the Roman Empire, who work survives today, being the world's largest religion. But being saved by grace, we're called to continue this work of kingdom building. The apostles had their mindset set on Christ and the heavens, which is why they could walk away from the middle-class living. It's because Christ called them and called them to heaven while they could leave their middle-class living. Their focus was rather on the promises of God instead of the wealth of fish. C.S. Lewis says it this way, aim at the heavens and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you'll get neither. So be focused on Christ. Be focused on his promises and just live faithfully as the disciples chose here to do. Be fishers of men in your home, in your work, out in public, and anywhere God calls you to. And we see this parallel in Luke chapter 5. Peter, that night, he caught nothing at all. Right, And they were coming to shore when Jesus caught them. And since the best time of fishing was over, it was getting late in the morning. But the Lord had Peter cast his net just one more time. And then they had an unnaturally large catch. Right? Some days you may seem like your kingdom efforts are worthless, not bearing any fruit, empty nets. Other times you get impossible wins because of the work of Christ. In this we see that God does promise victory. He is building his church. The gates of Hades will not prevail, and his called will be saved. So don't get discouraged in your work. Christ will build his church. Believe on him to do it. Just be faithful, trust God, and cast out your nets. Let's now look at the next part, verse 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What do you have to do with us? Excuse me. O Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, O Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And they were amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? Is is this a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere, throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. So after Christ's baptism, after his temptation, after the calling of the first third of the apostles, here we have the first act of ministry that Jesus does. What does he do? What does he do as his first act of ministry? He goes and partakes in weekly service. Right? He goes, he joins a community of faith, his Jewish believers. And he starts off by teaching. And he teaches with authority. Now, a quick aside on this language of authority. If you've been reading in this area at all over the last 30 years, you've probably heard this. that that many have taught that speaking in authority was to be speaking in accord with previous teachers, right? And so if I'm speaking with authority, I'm speaking based on what someone else has taught me. This is the view I was given in seminary. Paul might be saying that he was speaking with the authority of Gamaliel. That was his teacher, well-known teacher in his day. In fact, he bragged about him. And so if I repeat something I've heard from a teacher or a preacher, I can say that I'm speaking in the authority of R.C. Sproul. I'm mimicking what R.C. said. I'm speaking with his authority. Scholars held that this was what was meant when Jesus quote-unquote spoke with authority. That he was not relying on his own teachers or scribes, but he's speaking on his own authority. No one taught him. The problem with this theory is twofold. One is that the theory to speak with authority doesn't hold water. First, there's no external evidence outside the scriptures that this is what this means. We simply don't see this formula used in historic records. So the entire idea is tenuous. And the academic commentaries I read simply deny this as even a possibility. This idea, it was a supposition, throw it away. Secondly, it undermines what is really meant when Jesus taught with authority. It undermines that. In a way, Mark here is saying that he has authority, even that the demons obey him. That's the kind of authority he's talking about. He speaks, things happen. His word come out, people move. He taught with an authority unknown to others in that day. That even the experts of the texts, the scribes, they pale in comparison to how he taught. And I think this is still necessary today. We have many people who have passion for poor theology. We have others with great theology, but they lack zeal, the ivory tower types. Here, Jesus is teaching truth, teaching from the scriptures, and doing it with authority. He knows that this is God speaking through the text, that these are God's words, and we should ride on the, and the words ride on the back of the spirit directly to people's hearts, and that he himself, Christ himself, is fully convinced that what he is saying is true. These are his sincere beliefs. We don't only know, need to know what, that we are right, we also need to speak what is right and do so openly, freely, and in such a way that it seems that we are not pitching or selling something. People can tell when you're trying to pitch them something. People can also tell when you're being authentic. We need to teach because we believe it ourselves. As we are fishers of men, do we use real nets? Do you believe God's word is true? So much so that you want to see it have an impact in your life and in the world around you. So much so that you know, you know that if the text was taught, it would bear fruit. You just know it. That's how Jesus taught. Convinced. I'm also guessing by knowing everything else that is recorded about Christ, that he spoke plainly. Right? Right? This is part of the authority. He didn't see the need to give a million qualifications on everything he said. If you know what I'm talking about, it's almost like every month was no quarter November. He could come out and simply say, the Pharisees, your whitewashed tombs. He could just say it. And yeah, there were some Pharisees who were secretly following him and later would reprint and follow him publicly. And some Pharisees were more nice than others. But Jesus didn't bother to go out of his way and qualify. Now, some Pharisees might more maybe be like whitewashed tombs in some ways. And, of course, I mean no disrespect. It's just an analogy. Some of you aren't like this, but others, you just got to be careful. I'm concerned that you might become like a whitewashed tomb. They never talk like this. Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, never talk like this. This is what it means to speak with authority. He says the truth. Right? He speaks plainly, truthfully, without unnecessary qualifications. He speaks with authority, not shrinking back. He knows what he has to say. This authority he preached was intrinsically tied to the message of the kingdom. Right? This is why I read verse 15. Because he is king, because he's bringing a kingdom, and because his words carry weight, the scriptures are a royal decree. Repent. Join the kingdom. Let me ask, when we tell people to repent of their sins, do we do it as if it's God speaking through us, or do we cower and shy away? Do we hedge our language? Christ spoke with authority. He gave no room for misunderstanding, and he spoke plainly and clearly and not concerned with political correctness. Jesus spoke as if what he knew was true, was accurate, and he believed it. And he knew that everyone had to hear it, confident in the message, confident in the message's power, not doubting anything, certain that he was king and he has the right to put these words out there. And doing so sincerely, do we share this confidence? Do we have this level of faith in the king and in his decrees? Do we teach as if we've been delegated by God with his word and his authority? Now, this is no excuse to be rude, no excuse to be jerks. We can sin in our speech. We can be arrogant about it. We do need to bridle our tongues. We need to have self-control. We need to speak the truth in love. But we still need to speak the truth. And we should expect the Spirit to move. We should expect the Spirit. We should want the Spirit. We should know that the Spirit is going to move as we preach the Word as we confidently teach the truth, as we speak plainly and with authority, as Christ did, it will have an impact. It will change us. As we grow in confidence of the word, as we live more consistently with it, right? <clears throat> but it also impact those that we teach. This means that Christ is bringing about his kingdom through preaching. He is bringing about his kingdom through the word. It's also the way that God brought about the world He said, Let there be. God in Genesis created the world through his word. Today he's remaking the world. He's building his kingdom through his word. The word of God is powerful. The spirit moves and changes the things as we speak with authority of Christ. It may bring about positive change. People may repent, cities may convert, families may get baptized. It may bring about positive change but could also bring about greater judgment as people reject the message. Either way, the word of God does not return void. It does not return empty, and the word of God, when preached, does not do nothing. At the same time of the event of his sermon, in the synagogue, as Jesus is teaching, a demon-possessed man is revealed. Immediately it says he was there. I don't think that means he just appeared. It's just... He got up and made himself known. So at the the same event of his first sermon, a demon-possessed man is revealed. Because Jesus is teaching with authority, and he's teaching about the coming of the kingdom, this demon is provoked to respond. Because of his authoritative teaching, this demon finally has to to do something. Jesus' teaching is so authoritative that it forces forces a spiritual response When you share the gospel with friends and family and children in such a way, does it provoke demons to reveal themselves? You cannot remain neutral when the word of God is spoken. Either you believe and obey or you don't. There is a change that happens. The demon, through a man, asks this. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This unclean spirit knows who Jesus is. And he realizes that the king has come to town, and he's raising his flag there. The demon is threatened by Jesus. The demon is threatened by his authoritative teaching. And catch this, the man was at synagogue. He was there where the word of God was supposedly taught week in and week out by the experts, the scribes. He was there, probably expecting a normal Saturday morning service. Probably week in and week out, right? The scribes and Pharisees, they didn't teach with authority. That's why the comparison in the text is given between Jesus and the scribes. They didn't expound the text. They didn't teach the truth in such a way that a demoniac would have been forced to respond. The demon could just sit there, hearing the academics speak, hearing the scholars prattle on, week in and week out. Jesus' teaching and Jesus' words are effective compared to the scribes. The text gives us this comparison. So once Jesus got there and once he taught with authority, it made an impact. Does our teaching and preaching result in spiritual change? Do we stand confidently behind the authority and the claims of Christ? Is what you teach a threat to demons? is what you say to your friends and family, a threat to demons. So Jesus casts this demon out of the man. The spirit harms the man one last time as he comes out, squealing. It's a sound I never want to have to hear. Catch that? Jesus commands an unclean spirit. He is Lord, and what he says happens. Because the demon knew Christ and his authority, He is Jesus. His name means Savior. That he has the power to destroy. This is what the demons afraid of. You come here to destroy us. Christ has the power to destroy them. One little word, as we sang today, shall fail them. He has the power to unmake them with just his word. And that he was the Holy One of God. Christ is holy, unlike everything else. Unlike the fallenness of this world. The demons openly say that he is king, even ultimately over them. The Lord commands the spirit to be silent and to leave the man, and it does. And what's the result of this? He is speaking and teaching with authority, and he demonstrates his authority over the spiritual world. And people are amazed. Imagine being there, a young carpenter, normal middle class man with no formal training, walks in, you've probably seen him at the shop before, and starts teaching you the word with authority and confidence. He may be more engaging and more effective preacher than even the best trained men, the scribes. And then you see him exercise a demon. Wouldn't you also be astonished? There's no tricks to this, this is not a show. There's no lights, no smoke machines, no actors, no repetitive music. And you know the possessed man. He comes to synagogue week in and week out. He's not a threat to your life. And now, this man with an unclean spirit is praising God truly, repenting of his sins. And Jesus' teaching, He was moving, it was convicting. It had weight, it had strength behind it. That this would cause a discussion or two to come up around the water cooler the next day, which it does. The text tells us it does. You see that people were amazed. They started asking themselves, What is this? A new teaching? He commands even the spirits, and they obey him, right? The Word of God even had an impact on the regulars. They have to ask, Something different is going on here. What is this new thing? What is this new doctrine? The commentators I read point back to what is new is the kingdom, right? The context is still the preaching of the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand, and it's evidenced by a few things. First, it's evidenced by authoritative preaching. The king is here, and the king is giving his decrees. Secondly, it's evidenced by the casting out of demons. As we saw in Luke 11, it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then you know the kingdom of God has come. Because Christ has done this, the kingdom is upon you. Third, we know the kingdom is at hand because, of course, there is the king. And as I said last week, repent and come peacefully. But also by his preaching, by his exorcisms, by his works, you know the king has come and the kingdom is at hand. We know that. This is what amazed the people. Here is the king with authority, casting out demons, making a change to the world around him. And because of their amazement, Jesus' fame grew. It grew through the whole region, it says. So, for most of what he has seen, it must have been in the region of Galilee. John's ministry in Christ's baptism was in Galilee. The calling of the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. He was just there. This incident, the synagogue, was in Capernaum, which is a town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is recognized as being from this area. He was risen from Nazareth. At the end of the passage, we see that his fame spreads through Galilee. Here's a question. Is our lives, is our ministry of making Jesus known impacting our region? Are we living in such a way the Lord becomes a topic of discussion? Are his teachings and are his authority newsworthy around you? So when you put these two stories side by side, you see something interesting. God is building his kingdom by the calling of his people, the calling of four apostles. Three of them, later in the book, become the inner three, right? He calls the apostles to himself, to follow him, and he calls others to himself, and he casts out demons. He tells the apostles to call others and be fishers of men. So we saw that, you put these stories side by side, Christ is calling people with his word to himself. And then we saw today, he taught his word with authority and cast out demons. His word is powerful. <clears throat> the last couple of weeks we saw the nature of Christ, the nature of his kingdom. This week we saw that he's calling people to it. So, as we wrap up this week, we have seen the type of kingdom that Christ is bringing in. It is one where he's establishing it in his authority. It's a kingdom of men who are obedient to him. He is clearing out the demons, he's purging the land like the intruders that they are, much like how Israel purged the land as they moved into Canaan. He is calling us to repent and become fishers of men. This passage speaks to everything we have seen about Christ. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the coming one. He is greater than John the Baptist. He is the son of God which the Lord loves and is pleased. He resists all temptations. And now he is the one who can call people to leave their families and homes and careers behind. He is the teacher with authority bringing a new teaching. And he is the one who can command even the devils. By trusting in this Jesus you will not be disappointed. We must remember the context. Roman Christians are being persecuted by the empire. right? And contrary to popular belief, the civil government is a spiritual issue. God establishes governmental power for a purpose. And, he, and the state can and often does abuse that power. It's a spiritual thing. So Mark, in writing to the Christians, they're in a hostile environment. A government that has broken covenant with God. No longer properly rewarding good and punishing evil, no longer upholding justice as they're commanded, rather they're bearing the sword in vain. This is the environment in which Jesus is teaching to and Mark is writing to. As I said the first week, this book is written to Christians under pressure. Some may be ostracized for their beliefs, even loss of livelihood. The law favored certain identity groups. Right? Families disowning family. Happening to us today. Granted, it was worse for them. They were hunted and killed. But we're seeing the same sentiment popping up. Our government's walking down the same road. But Jesus can be trusted to overcome oppression. And there are two forms of oppression in today's text. There's two types of oppression here. One is the oppression of weak leadership. The scribes who are called to teach the word of God with authority, and yet they don't. People are sitting under poor leadership A single sermon from Christ. This is his first one. Amaze them. Cast out demons. Created news headlines. This was different. Weak leadership is an oppression as they're not using God's given authority over and for the good of the people. The people are suffering because they're not using their position and authority right. Maybe we can consider it an oppression of the academic. One who knows the text, one who does all the studying, but doesn't pronounce it with authority—the oppression of the academic—and the second type of oppression here is demon oppression. This man was under the control of an unclean spirit; he was oppressed, right under the direct command of a demon. This po- this possession wasn't likely a legion, where he walked into the graveyard, cutting himself. He was dirty and unkempt. No, this man was allowed to go into synagogue. Accepted by society. Likely respected by his community. Maybe even gave. This man was possibly in the life of others, influencing those around him. Makes you wonder how many demons walk around us without us knowing. And what kind of influence can they have over us? Can they fool us? This demon's impact was beyond just this one man, no doubt. The demon was allowed to continue... Because of the weakness of the scribes. Because of the weakness of the scribes, there could be a demon in their midst week in and week out. Christ is overturning the oppression from both. Those early Christians can trust in him against all authorities and powers, both in this world and otherworldly. Christ laid the foundation of the church by teaching with authority. By his word, he is calling followers. By his word, he is teaching at synagogue. By his word, he is casting out the enemies of God. By his word, he is building his kingdom. And we can participate in that. By recognizing that he is Lord, that he has come to establish a kingdom, and that by believing on him and repenting of your sins, you can be part of this kingdom-building project. And a kingdom that is from God that will have no end. And have the focus of the apostles. Jesus' command in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So be like Peter and Andrew, James and John. Leave the things you're called to leave behind. And boldly preach the gospel. And expect, in faith, a response. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you challenged, challenged to follow you as the apostles did, challenged to be fishers of men and to preach your word boldly, and challenged to seek your kingdom first. And I pray that you send your spirit to help us be obedient to this high calling. Lord, we trust that you are king and that you save your people and that you have proven it by sending your son to walk with us perfectly and not fall into any temptation. And it's his only name.
3: celebration of the Lord's Supper is recorded obviously in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke reading here from Luke 22 very familiar to us all and when he had taken some bread and given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given to you do this in remembrance of me and in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten saying this cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood so the actions of us communicants here is quite easy. We will take bread and eat, and we'll take the cup and drink, and do both in remembrance of him. However, this outward act is, is of eating and drinking is not the principal part of communion. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, describes the celebration in the same way, but adds in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Note that he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, these are distinctly different than any other meal that we might have with bread and wine. And you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We who partake, take him as our Lord in our life. We Yield ourselves up to him and live upon him is to be done in remembrance of Christ, to keep fresh in our minds his dying for us on the cross, as well as to remember Christ pleading for us in virtue of his death at God's right hand, to celebrate the grace in our redemption. We declare his death to be our life, the spring of all our comforts and hopes. Paul also says that for as often as you eat, and we at Christ Church of Livingston County believe that the Lord's Supper is not an ordinance to be done annually or monthly, but we do it all the time, as often as we meet here. We celebrate the Lord's death and his resurrection. Paul does lay before the Corinthians a danger of receiving it with unsuitable temper of mind, or as it's translated in verse 27, unworthy manner. However, we believers should not be discouraged from partaking in the Lord's Supper. The scripture wasn't written to um, cause fear of serious Christians from their obligation, their duty here to come before the Lord's Supper. But the the apostle simply points out that self-examination is necessary uh, for attendance, for right attendance to this table. So at Christ Church of Livingston County, We warmly invite to the Lord's Supper all those who are baptized disciples of Jesus Christ under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge that you're a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You also acknowledge to the elders of this congregation that you're in covenant with God being active in a congregation which is covenantly bound to the triune God through word and sacrament. We believe that this Lord's Supper is an integral part of confession, repentance, renewing, and abiding in Christ. Moreover, Moreover, it's our conviction that the bread and wine should be received by all baptized covenant members who are able to physically eat and drink the elements, including young children being raised in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. If you have any doubting participation, please speak to Tim and I after the service. Body of Christ, broken for you, let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, Christkirkmi.com. That's C H R I S T K I R K M I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.